So, totally cool, you came back. That's uh, very surprising, yeah. Hey, uh, they already told you we're getting ready. Uh, this is going to be the last week of the 60-Day Mary's Challenge as far as the sermon uh, content part of it goes. Uh, the next one that we're going into is a series called Dangerous Church. And it's really a moment we're getting ready to celebrate 20 years as a church. So a part of that is we're just going to talk about the things that are so critical and crucial to you and I being the church that Jesus always hoped that the church would be. On September 20th, we're going out to Tumbleweed Park. Uh, we've rented out the huge bowl that's there, and uh, we've set it up. And for the first time in 10 years, we're going to do a service where everybody who is Cornerstone meets together in one place, in one service at one time. Yeah. It's going to be super fun. So here's something for you, just for you to know. It's a little bit weird, but you can help us get the word out. We're doing an evening service, and the reason we chose to do that is because it's still pretty hot in September, and we thought, man, this, is, this could be bad. You know, we get there in the morning, and it's tolerable, and then we melt before we get done. And so we decided instead to do an evening service so that the sun will actually set and start cooling down on us, and we're, we'll, it'll be much more pleasant for everybody, especially for the kids, I think, to be out there in, in that big family-styled uh, service. So what it means is there won't be morning services uh, that day because it's one single service, not just the Chandler campus, but also Santan and Scottsdale will be there and we'll all be together at once. I think it's going to be an absolutely super, super cool uh, time. Hey, the other thing I just want to say out loud for you guys, because you guys are, uh, you know, you guys are in the middle of all this, uh, is to say, I want to invite you to be praying about our buildings right now. So uh, you've seen them. If you've walked on this side of the building, they're actually physically going up. The buildings are in two phases, and the first phase is to build an adult building, a children's building, and a fifth and sixth grade auditorium. And we had to build that first phase first because when we get ready to knock the walls out in this building, all the people who are behind those walls, all the adults that are doing adult maturity on that side and all of our early childhood on this side, they get displaced. So we had to have a building for them to land in when we went to expand this building. Does that make sense? Nod and pretend you're with me. Okay. So uh, we had to build them a home so that we could take their home away and knock these walls out. As we sit right now, all of our financing for phase one is in place and it's going forward. Where we're struggling right now is the financing for the second part of the phase, the actual expansion of the auditorium. And the reason we're struggling with it right now is because the pledges that we made for purple chairs are only coming in at about 60%. If we'd had them coming in at the level they should have been, everything would be fine. But they're not. They're coming in at about 60%. So we're going to have to say that out loud somewhere in the next few weeks and just encourage people who made pledges to get back online with their pledges. And the other part that I'm just going to say out loud real quietly in this room is, uh, because we're behind, we're probably going to have to ask some of us to help make it up. Uh, it's the only way we're going to get there. So I'm just telling you that because I want to invite you to pray that God would just prepare our hearts. I can't, I can't imagine anything more disappointing than for us to get this close to doing what we're supposed to do and kind of fumble the ball on the one-yard line. That just doesn't make any sense to me as your pastor. So I'm just going to invite you to pray because prayer changes things, right? That God would get the hearts of our people ready, that we would just accept this moment and move it forward as if there was no big deal and we would just get it done, okay? All right. Hey, uh, we're going to go back to Romans. We're going to go a little bit uh, quicker tonight, so grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to go. Again, I want to invite you uh, to ask 
questions. I love questions. I think I'm a better teacher uh, when people are asking questions, so feel free to do that. We have microphone runners somewhere. Yes, no? Okay, we have microphone runners. They're hiding in the back. So raise your hand real high when you've got a question. They'll come running around uh, with those microphones, and then they'll say something out loud to me like, hey, and, and then I'll know that someone has a question. Okay? Hey, let's have a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll get started. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, I just, man, I can't say how proud I am, Lord, that uh, we have a church uh, with people who want to come an extra night, want to dig deep into Scripture and uh, understand what you're saying. God, would you honor that? Would you take the time that's been set aside for you and for your glory, and would you just pour into us tonight? And we, may we leave this place saying, wow, I, I just, I understand Scripture at a better level. I saw things that I didn't know before. God really uh, used the evening uh, to move me forward in my walk. And we ask you this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so back to Romans uh, chapter 1. And I think we finished uh, verse 6. Does that sound right to everybody? Will you be okay with that? All right. And uh, we'll just jump into uh, verse 7. So it says in verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So you pretty well had figured that out when you saw the title of the book, that the book was written to Romans. But here's what you uh, need to understand. These Roman Christians, these Christians living in the city of Rome, are living in an absolutely pagan culture. The level of spiritual darkness in the city that they're living in is almost unheard of in the history of the world. You and I right now sit in America and very often go, man, I'm just so disappointed in how dark we are and how far off of biblical values we've gotten, and believe me, we have. There is no doubt of that. But you need to understand these Christians are living in an environment that makes modern-day America look like a bunch of saints. Uh, the culture is absolutely pagan. Uh, it's not uncommon when the rich people are throwing um, parties and festivals uh, that they would basically share each other's spouses there publicly at the party. Uh, there was gluttony going on. Matter of fact, uh, you can go back and you find ancient spoons, and you hear all these things about Roman fountains. Well, the reason the Romans had fountains is they would gorge themselves with food until they couldn't fill anymore. They'd walk over to the fountain, they would stick the spoon down their throat so they could throw up, and then go back to the banquet and fill their bellies again. And they would do that over and over and over again just for the joy of eating the food. And it's just a time of absolute spiritual darkness. I say this for you and I as a word of encouragement because you and I are not the first Christians to live in a dark culture. And they're having to live out their Christian faith amongst people who have absolutely no regard and no respect for the Christian walk. Matter of fact, within probably about 30 or 40 years of the writing of this book, the Romans are going to decide that killing Christians is actually a good thing. Nero is going to take Christians, have them bound to poles, dipped in tar, and he'll use them in the evenings to light his gardens as he throws his parties for his friends. So Christianity is on the verge of being outlawed as this book is being written, okay? So to those who are in Rome, dearly loved by God, and called, what's the next word? Saints. Saints. How did they get to be saints? I, I thought somebody had to vote on that. 
I, I thought you had to do like two miracles that could be testified to, and then somewhere you had to go before a board, and how come these guys are called saints? They're believers. And here's the answer. Every single person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. This has nothing to do with canonization. This has nothing to do with some group taking a vote. This has nothing to do with whether or not you performed uh, miracles. Every person who is in Christ is referred to as a saint. Matter of fact, you're going to find this terminology used over and over and over again in Scripture. Almost every time Paul writes one of his epistles to the church, he addresses the members of the church who are Christians. So let me be sure of that. Those who are there at the church who are Christians, he addresses them as saints. Okay? This whole idea of canonization and stuff is, is a man-made product that comes hundreds of years later and has nothing to do with biblical truth. Okay? So here we go, to the Rome, to those in Rome who are loved by God and who are called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is what? Undeserved. It's God giving me something I have not earned and do not deserve. Verse 8, uh, here's an interesting moment that's getting uh, ready to happen as we get into verse 8. He's going to begin to talk to them about how they're supposed to act with each other and operate together as a church. So here we go. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, why would their faith be reported all over the world? Why do you think? It's different. It's different. And guys, a lot of times I think we get freaked out when it starts costing us something to be Christians. But you realize it's in the hardest moments. It's when it's, when it, it's, when it's expensive to follow Jesus that your and my faith is most clearly demonstrated. And it's already begun to cost these Roman Christians something to follow Jesus. And they've been willing to pay the price. And the story of them taking their stands, the stories of them being willing to be ridiculed for the name of Jesus, is now going worldwide and encouraging other Christians. And isn't it interesting how often when you and I, maybe we're at work and somebody laughs a little bit at us for being a Christian, or maybe someone says, hey, you can't have that Bible study in the lunchroom anymore, and we go, man, I'm just being so persecuted for Jesus. And Paul would say, you have not resisted to blood yet. This has not cost you yet. And you need to be prepared. And I'm not, you know, I'm not hoping for that and wouldn't want that, but you just need to know there could be the moment when it costs to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But the interesting thing about that is, is that it's those moments, it's those moments when you and I live in the hardest of times really, really well, that Jesus is the most obvious to a dying world. Do you, these Christians, think about this, okay? In the very community that he's writing them to is a place called the Roman Colosseum. Uh, you may or may not know this uh, or not. In 70 AD, Remember Jesus, when he was on the earth, turned to the disciples, pointed to the temple, and said to the temple there in Jerusalem, hey, there won't be one stone left standing on another stone here in the temple. Do you remember that prediction? So the, the Jews will be revolting in 70 AD, 
they will send one of their commanders by the name of Titus. He will invade Jerusalem, and he will tear every stone of the temple down. The reason they tore every single stone down is that the mortar between the stones was solid gold, and they wanted the gold from the temple. Titus will then take the gold back to a place called… anybody want to guess? He's a Roman. To a place called Rome. <laughs> isn't that, that's amazing, isn't it? He'll take the gold back to a place called Rome. Matter of fact, if you go to Rome today, there's actually the Arch of Titus still sitting there in the city of Rome. The Arch of Titus sits right in front of another landmark that you and I would all know called the Roman Colosseum. The money from the temple in Jerusalem was used for the construction project to build the Roman Colosseum. Guess who ends up dying in the Roman Colosseum? Christians. Guess who they're throwing to the lions for sport? Christians. And as Paul is writing this letter, he's literally writing to the generation before, preparing them to be able to live for Jesus in what's about to come. Back to verse 8. First, I thank you, my God, through Jesus Christ for all, for all of you because your faith is being reported to all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. What is the gospel? The good news. The good news that you and I who are sinners can be saved by the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, here's the first thing you need to know. It's interesting because the church in Rome is not started by Paul. Paul starts tons of the other early Christian churches, but not the one in Rome. And a matter of fact, as you read all of the letters of Paul, he's constantly trying to make it to Rome so that he can witness to this church in Rome. It, it's super heavy on his heart. The problem is because the persecution is already starting to pick up, all of the, his traveling companions are saying, Paul, don't you dare. You can't possibly go to Rome. It's too dangerous for you to go to Rome. Everybody there will know you're Paul the apostle, and, and you'll be arrested almost immediately. Does anybody know, does Paul ever make it to Rome? Yes. How does Paul make it to Rome? As a prisoner. He's preaching the gospel. He ends up arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, if you remember, they try to stone him to death. They then drag him in front of the magistrate. The magistrate says, I don't really think he's done that much wrong. Just go beat him up a little bit more and then release him, and to which moment Paul says to him, hey, wait a minute, can you beat a Roman citizen without a trial? Why don't they think he's a Roman citizen? Anybody know? What is it? Why do we think he's not a, why would they not think he's a Roman citizen? Because he's a Jew. He probably looks very Hebrew. He's probably got the full Jewish beard grown out, which would have been very un-Roman of him, okay? And we know that Paul is a full-blooded Jew, so how does he end up being a Roman citizen? 
Not from Tarsus. We don't know. Oh, okay, all right. So here's our best guess. <laughs> our best guess is that one of two things has happened. Either his father has been incredibly wealthy and has bought his Roman citizenship, which is a possibility, or his father potentially served in the Roman army with distinction, at which point they would then grant you Roman citizenship. But somewhere in his lineage ahead of him, somebody has found Roman citizenship, even though they're full-blooded Jewish. We know he's full-blooded Jewish because Paul was a member of what? The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and he's not going to pull that off as a Roman, okay? So he ends up getting to Rome. Here's another really, really cool part about it. He goes to Rome as a slave, or he goes there as a prisoner. While he's in Rome, does anybody know what he does? What does he do? He writes letters to churches, which you and I now call what? The epistles or the New Testament. Almost half of the New Testament is written while Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. But there's another part of this story that I think is even in some ways a little bit more interesting. While, while Paul is under house arrest, they have to send Roman guards in to guard him. Uh, the Roman guards are the very same guards that guard Caesar, because you remember he's waiting trial with Caesar? So they're sending the proletarian guard in to watch this character named Paul. While you're in the house, chained to Paul, guess what Paul's doing? Paul is preaching the gospel. Paul ends up winning huge numbers of the Roman proletarian guard to Jesus Christ. We know this because we have the historical story that several years later after the death of Paul, when the Roman persecution begins to go into full swing against the Christians, the Caesar then orders the proletarian guard to go and slay the Christians of Rome, and the proletarian guard stands and says, we will not because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And it's because an apostle sat in prison preaching the gospel of Jesus as they were shackled to him. It's a really cool story. Anyways, all right, never mind. Okay, so back to verse uh, 9. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is now my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Think about this for a moment. Here's a guy who's probably the most vibrant Christian to ever walk the face of the earth, who says, I can't wait to hang out with you because I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to give some things to you, but I'm equally confident that you're going to be able to instill some things into me. And you realize that Paul here is affirming that Christianity is never a solo sport. That Christianity was always meant to be lived in community. And that none of us is the body of Christ by ourselves. We are the body of Christ when we are together. You ever met somebody who says, oh, I don't need to go to church? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because there's no way for you to possibly contain and have all that Christ is 
There's no way for you to learn and to grow into the fullness of Christ without the rest of the body rubbing up against you and interacting with you and pushing in your life and sharing what Christ has already taught them. Christianity is never, ever, ever a solo sport. And if, and if by some measure of the imagination you believe that you have gone so far in Jesus Christ that you don't need any of the rest of us, then you need to doubly come to church because you need to help us, okay, if you're really that good. But Christianity never has a checkout clause. Christianity always has a collaborative clause. And you and I are to always be investing. And here's what I want to say to you guys. We're, you and I are sitting in the mine right now. I love that you're here. This, hopefully this is a good Bible study for you and you're able to go deeper in Scripture together. But the reality is, guys, you cannot substitute this for community. This is going to have a lot of content, but you've got to have a place of community within the church because Christianity is not just head knowledge. And so I just want to encourage you, you need to be serving somewhere so that you're rubbing up against other brothers and sisters. Uh, you may need to be in a small group. I don't care where you find community in the church. You just need, I don't care if you're ushering. I don't care as long as you've got other Christians who you have the opportunity to rub up against and they have the opportunity to rub up against you. And that is more than a Bible study. Okay? So... My encouragement to you is I love that you're here. I love that we're doing this, but this room doesn't afford enough community. You cannot be the church if you just sit in a seat. Okay, back to the passage. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to who? Everyone. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for how many? Everyone. It is the power of salvation to everyone. What's the next word? Who believes. And guys, I just want you to circle that. I want you to note that. This is going to get really important as we get to some other passages in Scripture that have a tendency to be a little hard to navigate. That the operative word, the word that engages salvation is belief. Okay? So can we get the pad going here real quick? Can we show the pad? Yes, the pad. Yeah, all right, there we go. So here's all I want you to catch in this moment. Here's what, here's what it just needs to kind of land for you. Paul here says, I believe, and believing brings about salvation. Okay? Very simple principle. I just want you to note it because the order of that is going to be really, really valuable later on as we begin to discuss. Okay? So believe, saved. Believed, saved. Not the other way around. Not saved, believed. Believed, saved. Okay, all right, all right. We got that? We're good? Okay, all right. All right, verse 16, And I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Okay, this is an interesting phrase because you 
why does Paul feel constrained to say first to the Jew and then to the Gentile? Do we have a microphone runner? Who thinks they have an answer? Go ahead, raise your hand. Raise it high because the microphone runner is not seeing it. There we go. Okay. Why to the Jew first and then to the Gentile? Because the Jews were the chosen people. Okay. The Jews were the chosen people. All of the law came through the Jews, right? God has been dealing with the world until this moment primarily through the Jews. At the cross, something changes. There comes a huge shift, and now included in the conversation are the Gentiles. And God moves away from a nation and now moves to a group of people that we call what? The church. The church. The church never existed pre the cross. The church is a new thing that the Jewish people had no idea or no concept was on the horizon. Okay? Here's an interesting thing. I'm just going to throw it out. I'll let, I'll let it simmer there for a little while. You guys can decide how you feel about it. If you read the Gospels, especially if you read the book of Matthew, all through the book of Matthew, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you remember that phraseology coming through? Okay. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What would have happened, do you think, if the Jewish people had actually accepted Jesus as their king? Isn't that an interesting question? What if instead of crucifying him, what if they had believed him? Isn't that interesting? And all through the early parts of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to the Jews, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is right here in front of you. You get midway through the book of Matthew, and there's this incredible moment in which the Pharisees are confronting Jesus, and uh, Jesus has just cast a demon out of a demon-possessed man. And they confront Jesus. They say, what are you doing? And Jesus says, well, I've just done the work of God. And they say, this is not the work of God. This is the work of Satan. Remember the conversation? And in that moment, Jesus says, don't be very, very careful because you're about ready to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You're calling the very work of God in your presence the work of the devil. And you are the leaders of Israel who are the ones responsible to acknowledge the king when he comes, and you're getting ready to throw away the king. Now, here's an interesting thing that happens after that moment. From that moment on, Jesus begins to preach, the Son of Man must die. Isn't that interesting? All through his early ministry, he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. When the Pharisees, when the elders of the temple reject him and call his work the work of Satan, he now says, the Son of Man must die. Uh, we're no longer heading toward a kingdom. We're heading toward a cross. And in that moment, I would argue, the Jewish nation is set on hold for a while. Anybody know when we're going to deal with the Jewish nation again? Tribulation period after the rapture. Seven years of dealing with the Jews again. But the Jews have been set on hold, and this new thing was then born and came into life, and it's this thing called the church. And it included a group of people called the Gentiles. 
all the non-Jews are now included in the church. There's an interesting thing, too, that happens. Remember when Jesus is here, and he says to Peter, uh, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the son of God. And he says, good for you, Peter, for figuring that out. That wasn't something you figured on your own. God helped you understand that. And Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Remember that? Okay. Isn't that an interesting thing? What does that mean? Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then he goes on to say, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the conversation with Peter? I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus mean by that? Does that mean when you go to heaven, you know, Peter's standing at the gate, and you got to go, hey, really, I was a good person. You ought to let me in. Does it mean that Peter was the first pope? What does it mean when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I'm going to give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that an interesting phrase? All right, let's chase, I'm, I want us to chase this for a minute because I think it's fun, and, and even if you don't like it, I will. Okay, so here we go. Here's what I do. I want you to grab your Bibles real, real quick. Go to Acts chapter 2. So it's going to be a little bit uh, to the left in your Bible, Acts chapter 2. Anybody remember what's happening in Acts chapter 2? Day of Pentecost. And, and on the day of Pentecost, uh, it's a Jewish feast. Uh, all the Jews have come to the temple for the celebration of it. A guy happens to stand up and give a sermon that day. Anybody remember who gave the sermon that day? Peter. Huh. The, guys who Je- the guy who Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven stands up on the day of Pentecost and gives a sermon. It's a really interesting sermon um, because he's, here's what, let me give you the content of the sermon basically. He stands up on the day of Pentecost. He begins to preach. Remember the Bible says they all heard in their own language. Remember that? And then they said, well, hey, they must be drunk. And Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not going to drink till 10. You know, so, so they do that. But Peter then begins to give a sermon, and he says, hey, what you're witnessing right now is actually the Holy Spirit being poured out upon our lives, which is what was promised by the prophet Joel would happen when the king was here. So think about what Peter just preached. Peter said, what you're seeing and what you're witnessing happening right now is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which the prophet Joel told you would happen when the king of Israel was at hand. And then he goes on with his sermon and says, oh, by the way, you killed the king 50 days ago. His name was Jesus, and you hung him on a cross. Now watch what happens. It's Acts chapter 2. Let's go to verse 36. This is the middle of his sermon, and he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, the guy you just killed, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what can we do? So for the first instant, Israel finally realizes they've killed their own king. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and were about how many? 3,000. Now think about this a minute. On what day did Jesus have 3,000 converts? And as best we know, he didn't. We don't have a single recorded record in which 3,000 in one day made that decision and came over to faith. And yet they do on this day with Peter preaching. Why? 
because they saw the evidence of the Holy Spirit, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy that said the king will be here when this happens. And Peter says to him, well, the king would have been here, but you killed him. And 3,000 Jews convert on that day. So on that day, ready for this? On that day, Peter opened up the kingdom. He used the keys of the kingdom. And what group of people walked through? Jews. Jews on the day of Pentecost. Now go a little bit further in the book of Acts. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. Here's what happens. Uh, A couple of the disciples, Philip is one of them, happens to go to Samaria. Okay, anybody know who lives in Samaria? Samaritans. Very good. Samaritans live in Samaria. And where did Samaritans come from? Samaria. Wow. We are making so much ground so fast. Okay, here's where Samaritans came from. Uh, Samaria is the region... But uh, how you end up with Samaritans is this. Uh, The Babylonians have dragged the Jews off to the Babylonian captivity. Remember a guy by the name of Daniel and the lion's den? Remember that? One of the early Babylonian captives. And as the Babylonians dragged off Israel into captivity, they left some farmers behind uh, to till the soil so that they could come back and get crops, you know, as kind of revenue from them. But you tended to leave women and children and old men. You took all of the guys who were strong and young and can work back to Babylon to build monuments. So now you've got all these women and old men living in Israel in the region of Samaria. Oh, by the way, you leave some Babylonian guards to guard them. Guess who the women married? Babylonian guards. And now it's years later, and the children of Israel come back, and they get back to Israel, and they find these half-breeds. They're half-Jewish, and they're half their enemies. They're half-Babylonians. And they want nothing to do with the Samaritans. They represent everything that is wrong. They would have wished those women would have died barren rather than marry the Babylonians. And so they will have nothing to do with these, these offspring that are there. So there's great contempt between the Jews and the Samaritans. So think about this. Philip now goes to Samaria and begins to witness to Samaritans. Remember the story of the good Samaritan? Remember that? He's a descendant. He's a half Babylonian, half Jew. The Jews hate him, and now Philip has gone to the Samaritans to tell them about Jesus. This is not a happy moment for the church. The problem is when he gets there, the Samaritans start believing on Jesus Christ. They're so upset about this in Jerusalem, guess who they send to check it out? Anybody want to guess who gets sent? Peter. And now Peter is sent to Samaria to find out, can those half-breeds really be Christians? Okay? He gets there. Here it is. It's verse 14. And now Peter's come back and said, man, I was there. These guys really believed. Matter of fact, I saw the Holy Spirit. They were, you know, it was just, it was an amazing moment. Here it is. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Then... Okay, I don't see it right here, so I'll have to tell it to you, and then we'll find it. So here's the problem. Peter now goes back to the church in Jerusalem, and he says to the church in Jerusalem, guys, it's, it's kind of weird, but Samaritans are becoming Christians. And the church in Jerusalem, which is filled with Jews, says, well, maybe God's just being nice because they're half Jews, right? They're half Jews, so maybe that counts. Who did Peter just open the kingdom up to? Samaritans. Half Jews. Keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's not done yet. Grab your Bibles. Go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 10. So just a couple pages over. Acts, chapter 10. Yeah. Oh, question. Okay. You read that these Christians didn't have the Holy Spirit and they laid hands right. on them to receive the Holy Spirit. Yep. I thought that once somebody accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. So why Very they... good. Thank you. Do I get a cookie? Huh? <laughs> what was the last thing? Oh, you get a cookie. Yes, you do. You get a cookie for that one. It's really interesting. So what's happening in the book of Acts is Abbey normal, okay? So here's what, does anyone remember when they were building the 202 out here? How many remember that? Okay, all right. Do you remember how many construction signs there were on that thing and you'd get on and all of a sudden they'd have you detouring off and then they'd get you back on again and then you'd be detouring off and, and there, it was just cones everywhere and just, it just a mess for like a year, right? When they were building that. Because when you're under construction, you put up lots of construction signs. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes. Because if you didn't put up construction signs when you were under construction, what would the cars do? The chaos. They'd be driving through the workers. They'd be driving off into ditches. They'd miss the roads. So when you're changing the roads, you put up lots of construction signs. Does that make sense? We're, we're good? Welcome to the book of Acts. Because think about what God is going to do in the short span of about 20 years here in the book of Acts. He's going to take what used to be working with the nation of Israel exclusively, and now we're going to set the nation of Israel aside. We're now going to work with a group of people called the church. Oh, by the way, they're not just going to be Jews. They're going to be Samaritans. We're going to find out in just a second they're going to be Gentiles, which is really a mind blower. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to totally change how God is operating in the world, and now he's going to function through a thing called the church. So the book of Acts is God putting up construction signs all along the way to get Jewish believers to understand this brand new idea of the church. Once they understand it, he'll take all the signs away, and now they can drive the freeway. Following so far? Okay. So, one of the ways you do this is you say, okay, how do we let people know that somebody is really a believer? And Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to give someone who believes in me the Holy Spirit. You realize Old Testament believers did not have the Holy Spirit. Did you guys know that? 
Matter of fact, uh, it's a very, very rare occasion, and usually only people in leadership or somebody who was a prophet or a judge in Israel would potentially have the Holy Spirit. The average person in the Old Testament does not have the Holy Spirit. You and I have such a huge advantage over anybody who has ever lived before the church because you and I have the presence of God inside our lives, the promised Holy Spirit, okay? So Jesus, in order to do this construction zone, to help us understand it's no longer the nation of Israel, it's now the church says, okay, so here's an identifying marker. I'm gonna give the Holy Spirit. Remember when he says that? When I leave, I will send you a comforter, okay? But he's gotta make sure that you see it happen right? Just like construction signs that have flashing arrows on them so you can't miss them, right? And so, during this period of time, this is going to be different than how it is the rest of the time once the freeway opens up. He's going to make sure you see when the Holy Spirit comes so that everybody knows beyond a shadow of a doubt those people are Christians. And a matter of fact, it's most applicable to what we're studying right now and going through this process. On the day of Pentecost, when those Jewish believers believed, they were filled with the Spirit. When the Samaritan believers believed just now, remember, and Peter prayed over them, what did he evidence? He saw them get filled with the Spirit, okay? In just a minute, we're going to watch a Gentile get filled with the Spirit. Why did God do that? So that Peter the guy with the keys to the kingdom of heaven would have no doubt that Gentiles could go to heaven, okay? So it's a construction zone. So it's a great catch, but what you also need to know is as we get through the book of Acts, God's gonna take all the construction signs up and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes in the moment of salvation, the moment of belief for every believer. We know that because Ephesians tells us that's true, okay? But the book of Acts is highway construction, and it has lots of flashing arrows in it, and lots of things that aren't normal the rest of the time. We're good? Okay, we're good. All right. Great catch, though. I love that. All right. So, jumping over and going to Acts chapter 10. Okay. Acts chapter 10, did we have a question? All right, question, yep. Um, Yes, uh, I don't know if this is uh, the right time, but we're talking about Samaritans and um, uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles. Can you differentiate between how pagans fit in there? I I probably knew at one time, but I can't. Yeah, so for the most part, Gentiles and pagans are going to be almost synonymous, okay? The only difference that you've got in Gentiles, and and I love that you asked the question, because a matter of fact, that when we get back to Romans, that's exactly where we're going with this. The only thing you would have had in a Gentile is you would have had the, the really paganistic Gentile. I mean, the just really rough and horrible and dark rituals of worship type of Gentile and some of the like Roman leadership type of Gentile. But you also would have had Gentiles who were generally good people. They, they, they were kind, and they, maybe they helped people that were in need. Uh, they weren't Christians, and they weren't Jews, but they were good-type people, okay? But both of those, all of those are going to fall into the term Gentile because they're non-Jewish. Did that help? Yes? Okay. All right. 
All right, here we go. We're going to land this because we've got to get back to Romans. You guys have got me on a sidetrack. All right. All right. But this is good. You're going to tell your grandkids about this someday. All right. So Peter just got Jews into the kingdom of heaven. Peter just got Samaritans into the kingdom of heaven, right? Because they were half Jews, so they got kind of a pass. Okay? But now he's going to get his mind blown because Peter is going to open up the kingdom of heaven to Gentiles, which is something he never thought possible. Okay? Matter of fact, think about this. When Jesus dies and all the disciples are hanging around after Jesus' death, where do they hang around? Anybody know? What do the Jews do after Jesus dies? Remember Jesus said, hey, go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel? Remember that? What do the the disciples actually do after Jesus dies? They hang out in Jerusalem. They're all at one church in Jerusalem. They're not going anywhere in the world. Matter of fact, here's an interesting thing. It actually ends up being the Roman persecution. Remember that? That actually scatters the church in Jerusalem all over the world. And those persecuted Christians end up being missionaries to the rest of the world because they take Jesus with them when they flee the persecution of Rome. Because the disciples modeled a horrible example and all stayed huddled in Jerusalem and had no desire to take this gospel to Gentiles. Okay? But here we go. It's uh, Acts uh, chapter 10. Uh, you probably know the story a little bit. G- or Peter's on the top of his house one day. He's, he's praying. And all of a sudden, he has a vision from God. And God lowers down a sheet that has a whole bunch of animals on it. Remember this, this thing? Remember this? Sort of? Okay, if you don't remember it, read Acts chapter 9. And it's kind of a funky story. But uh, here comes this sheet coming down from heaven. It's a vision. And there's all these animals. Here's the problem. All of the animals violate the Jewish customs for food. All the rules in the Old Testament regarding food are on that sheet, and Peter's not supposed to eat any of them. Uh, God says to Peter, hey, get up, uh, kill one of them, and eat them. And Peter says, no way, I've lived my whole life not eating those animals. I'm not going to do that. She goes back into heaven. God lowers it back down again, says, hey, take one of the animals and eat it. He goes, no, I can't do it. I can't. I'm a Jew. I have to live by the law. That's what I'm supposed to do. And God does this multiple times with Peter. Suddenly, there's a knock at a door of Peter's house right after the vision. It's a, anybody want to guess? It's a Gentile who says, my master sent me to come get you. He wants to hear about this Jesus dude. And Peter says, well, maybe that's what God was doing. He was saying, don't call the animals dirty. Maybe I shouldn't call these Gentiles dirty, but I mean, they can't be Christians, right? Because they're Gentiles. And so he goes with this servant of a man by the name of Cornelius. He goes to Cornelius' house, and he says, what do you want? And Cornelius says, I've been hearing this kind of story about Jesus thing. I just, I want to know about Jesus. Peter says, okay, I'll tell you about Jesus, but it won't do you any good because you're a Gentile, and you can't go to heaven anyways. He begins to preach to Cornelius. Anybody want to guess what happens as he's preaching to Cornelius? Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit. And then Peter has to say, crumb Even Gentiles get to go to heaven, okay? So here it is. Here we go. Acts chapter uh, 10, verse 44. Uh, Here's what it says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. This is Cornelius' family. Uh, The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. They're mind blown. 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on dirty Gentiles. Okay? Then you skip over to chapter 11, uh, verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And Peter began to explain everything to them precisely as it happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance. I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven on its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth and beasts and reptiles and birds of the air. And then I heard a great voice telling me, get up and kill Peter and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or clean has ever entered in my mouth. And the voice from heaven spoke a second time, and he goes through the whole story with them. And then uh, go over to verse 18. And when they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so, wow, then God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. And Peter, who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, just opened the heaven for who? Gentiles. You and me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, Peter, upon you I will build my church, and you'll be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and Jews get saved. He goes down to see the ministry of Philip and sees that Samaritans can be saved, and then God sends him to the house of a guy by the name of Cornelius, and he comes back and says, well, I guess God's even going to save them Gentiles too. Here's what's interesting when you read the book of Acts. Almost immediately after this story, Peter is no longer a figure in the book of Acts. Isn't that interesting? Guess who the book of Acts shifts gears and talks about almost exclusively the rest of the time? A guy by the name of Paul who is the missionary to the Gentiles because Peter just opened the doors of the kingdom to the Gentiles. Okay? All right, but that was fun. All right, let's go back to Romans. Some of you didn't like it, but somewhere you're going to really impress somebody someday that you knew that information. How much time do we have? Where are we at? Oh, we got a question. Okay. We mentioned that they tarried in Jerusalem, stayed there. Don't you think there was a reason for that, that they had all this learning to do as to who was going to be included? I mean, even when uh, Peter went to Cornelius' house, he himself had to realize that Jesus was offering salvation yeah. to all. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I guess I'll give them a little bit of grace and say, hey, maybe they were having some Bible studies and they were doing, you know, early seminary classes, you know, to get ready. The, the reason that I run out of that grace for them is, is that you have absolutely no account. Matter of fact, think about this, as you later hear the ministry of Paul, and so Paul now is out going to Thessalonica, going to Laodicea, going uh, to Ephesus and building all these churches, remember when he has to go back uh, to Jerusalem, guess who's still all sitting in Jerusalem? All the apostles. They haven't left yet. Which, you know, I mean, guys, let's be honest, we do that in churches all the time, right? We come in, we do our Bible studies, and our neighbors go to hell. You know, we do that, right? So, you know, we learned well. Um, but th that's what they're doing. They they've created a holy huddle in Jerusalem. They have not been evangelistic with the gospel. They've failed to do this. I heard, I heard a preacher a while back, and it's kind of silly, but I heard a preacher a while back say, you know, I think Jesus got to heaven, and he said, uh, and God came up to Jesus and said, what do you think? Jesus said, I think I did pretty good. I kept 11 of the 12, and I think we're in good shape. 
And uh, God said to Jesus, you better think again. Those 11 are never going to get it done. We better go find somebody else. And so then they went for Paul. So who knows? All right, here we go. Um, Back to verse 17. For in the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? Right with God. It's the easiest way to remember it. Righteousness simply means right standing with God, which Isaiah said to us, none is righteous, no, not one, right? All of our good deeds are as filthy rags to the Lord. And you don't want me to explain filthy rags. Uh, All of our best efforts as humans come up way, way, way short. So how do you and I end up with righteousness? By the cross, yeah, by Jesus Christ. Because God takes all of our filthy rags, puts them on a cross, and a Savior makes us right with God. And guys, here's why that's so critical, and this is why you've got, you've got to understand why this is so essential. It, it's, it's what the disciples meant when they said, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Because you realize every other religious belief is about you taking your good deeds to God and them piling up high enough to earn heaven. The story, the gospel of Jesus Christ is just the opposite. Jesus came to say, your pile will never be big enough. Your pile will never be clean enough. And you require a savior. No other religious faith has a savior in it. They simply have good teachers, which I would argue are not good teachers at all, okay? They're false teachers. But the story and the gospel is, the good news is, there is a Savior who makes us righteous. It's why this story is the story that everybody has to hear, because it's the story you die without. You miss God without this story of a Savior. All right, how much time do we have? Huh? Five minutes. All right. Nine. All right, nine. All right, let's see how far we get nine. All right, so let me set this up. We're about to shift. This is Romans. It's chapter one. We're about to shift. It's interesting because you may or may not know this. The book of Romans, until about 1950, was actually taught in law schools. The reason it was used in law schools is because what Paul is about to do is set the perfect criminal case. He's about to look at mankind, and he's about to have us all convicted of being criminals. And he is so thorough, and he is so flawless in his execution of his prosecution of humankind, of mankind, that literally law schools for hundreds of years used the book of Romans to, tell, to teach lawyers how to prepare a good case. Okay? And we're about to dive in. All right, here we go. Let's see how far we get. It's verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. What is wrath? Anger. Okay, I can remember my mom getting angry at me. 
but I'm not sure that was wrath. What is wrath? Extreme anger. And, and think about that for a moment. There can, you can be extremely angry, but that may not even be wrath yet, right? Wrath is like on the top of the anger spectrum. It's like, I mean, what do you do after wrath? There is nothing after wrath. Wrath is wrath, okay? So here's what it says. It says, the wrath of God, the absolute frustration, anger, dislike, I mean, whatever that word is, you want to, it, it, is, it has reached its limit. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who, what's the next word? Suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress? Huh? Okay. It, it, it's just simply to push it down. To, 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 to put it out of sight, to, to put it somewhere that I don't have to deal with that. And Scripture's about to say, hey, God is so frustrated because He's tried so hard to reach out and to let people know that He was there and to have people consider Him and then come to know Him. And the most intuitive response of man is to push that away to not deal with it. Why, why do we so not want to deal with the reality of God? Why do people want to avoid God? Say it again. We're dead in our transgressions. We're dead in our transgressions. All right, I'll, I'll go there with you. Huh? Hmm. Mm. We had one over here. Here's some of the things we said. We have to surrender control. It puts us in accountability. We have to look at ourselves. I think in our culture today, it's, it's not common to believe in absolute truth. Hmm. You have the right to believe in what's true or what's not yeah. for our culture. And it is, how, how funky is this? If you believe it, that's okay. What? please do not tell that to the girl giving me change at the store. I believe I gave you the... No, you did not give me the right change. I'm telling you, you failed math. That's what's clear here, right? <laughs> Believing it doesn't make anything right. Something being right is what makes it worthy of believing. But believing something never made anything true. Yep. I was just going to say the reality of hell is uncomfortable. Hmm. And here's, here's, and I think, guys, I think we've hit all around it, and I think we've, you know, kind of touched on it. Here's the deal. If God's there, then I probably have some accountability. See, I, if God is there, then I don't get to be God. I don't get to decide how to live my life without consequence. I don't get to do anything I want to do and never have to answer for it. And if God is real, then I'm really, then how I'm living right now is horribly reckless. And I would have to admit that I'm pretty dumb 
for living this way if God is real. And so what we do intuitively is we go, well, you know, I, I just, man, I, no, I, yeah, I, I don't think I believe any of that. I don't, I don't think I want to acknowledge that any, any of that is there. I, I just like to push that away because I'm just telling you it's a horribly inconvenient truth if God is real. Hey, guys, when you run into an atheist, and we'll stop with this. When you run into an atheist, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet you money that over 90% of the time when you run into someone who says, hey, I'm an atheist, ask them this question. What philosophical study did you do? What, what intensive research did you immerse yourself into in science that brought you to the logical conclusion that there is no God. And 90% of the people you ask that question to who claim to be an atheist are going to go, uh, um, because that's not how they got to be an atheist. You know how they got to be an atheist? They lived a lifestyle so filled with sin that one day, whether consciously or unconsciously, they said to themselves, if I'm living like this and there's a God, I'm in trouble. And the most convenient thing for me if I want to continue to live this recklessly is to deny that God exists because then my behavior is not so insane. And you will find with the vast, vast, vast majority of people who claim to be atheists, a lifestyle of sin that their conscience has bothered them about. And they have, you ready, suppressed the truth so they wouldn't have to deal with it. All right. Any real quick questions because we're done for the night? Yep, real quick. Yep. Don't we all have conviction inside of us? Yes. We, we have to have conviction in order to even think that way to try to push it out of our mind and live a lifestyle that we know doggone well is wrong. Yep. Yep. So what happens, and the best way I can describe this is, remember in Genesis chapter 3 it said that we were all created in the image of God, right? Part of that image of God is what you and I would call conscience, okay? Think about this. No animal has conscience. There's not a lion out there that goes, why, why did I kill that little zebra? I, I bet you he had zebra brothers. What was I thinking? I wasn't even that hungry, and I killed him. No lion has ever done that. Why? Because a lion does not have a morality. They do not have a conscience. Part of when Genesis 3 said, you are in the image of God, it was talking about what you and I refer to as conscience. Matter of fact, this is one of the things that evolutionists have no answer for. If you and I are descendant from animals, where did our moralistic compass come from? that is almost unilateral amongst humans. You walk up to almost any human and you say, hey, that's a lie, you shouldn't do that. Almost any human will say, well, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't lie. Oh, you just killed somebody, you shouldn't do that. Well, yeah, I probably shouldn't have. Because there's this moral, this image of God that is in us, we call it conscience. The incredible thing is, is that when the Holy Spirit comes into my life, that little C conscience goes, Wah! and gets really big. And sin doesn't taste the same anymore, and it, you know, it just ruins sin for you forever. But anyways, all right. Yeah, real quick. Okay, you were talking about atheists. My stepdad's atheist. Yeah. And when I ask him why does he think he's atheist, he comes straight out and he'll say, because there ain't a God that I can see or feel or know about without yeah. the Word, and the Word is not true. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to say to your, your atheist father. In respect, uh, he's wrong. 
Uh, matter of fact, Romans is going to come, and you want to come back next week because Romans is going to say just the opposite. Romans is going to say that if you would just pause for a minute, it is absolutely obvious that God is there. That, that you have to absolutely close your eyes not to see God. Okay? And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But a great question. All right. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll call it done. Okay? Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for time to be in your word. Thanks for time to study. God, would you take uh, what we've learned tonight? Would you uh, use it in our lives? God, maybe even more, would you maybe even give us the opportunity to share it and to teach it to other Christians uh, coming up in their faith behind us? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.